Hello ladies and gentlemen this is Nishant and welcome to another episode of the Nishant Gill show the mission of the show is to spread awareness on mindfulness practices psychology mental health and spirituality my job on the show is to invite world class performers to share the practices to live a fulfilled life today's guest is Michelle Dickinson Michelle is a passionate mental health advocate a TEDx speaker and a published author of a memoir entitled Breaking into my life After years of playing the role of child caregiver, Michelle embarked on her own healing journey of self-discovery. Her memoir offers a rare glimpse into a young girl's experience living with and loving her bipolar mother. Michelle spent years working to eradicate the mental health stigma within her own workplace by elevating compassion, causing more open conversations, and leading more real change in how mental illness is understood in the workplace. Michelle also knows firsthand what it feels like to struggle with a mental illness after experiencing her own depression due to challenging life events of her own just a few years ago. She has a strong desire to positively impact the mental health landscape within the first responder community, the workplace and within local communities. In this episode, she discusses about her mom with bipolar disorder, her own mental health and depression, how to navigate through these issues. and she also talks about working towards helping first responder to no more keep listening Michelle welcome to the show thank you so much for having me i'm thrilled to have you after a long time <laughs> <laughs> so how does your family describe what you do for a living now <laughs> I don't know that they know. I don't know that they figured it out. They're kind of like as she's doing her thing, let's just see if she if she can survive. <laughs> if she can survive. What did they mean? Yeah, I mean I'm I'm doing something untraditional, right? Like I'm following my passion and I'm optimistic that that passion is going to carry me forward, you know, as a as a mental health advocate and a change agent. I think it's sort of uncharted waters. So Yeah, I'm not really sure that they know. <laughs> is mental health untraditional? Well, what I'm out to do is. So, you know, you have the clinical perspective where there's training, clinical training like say mental health first aid or therapy for individuals that need that need support during crisis or otherwise. What I'm out to do is go into organizations and first responder agencies and shift the culture. so that it's more compassionate for its employees who struggle with invisible disabilities. And what's the current culture look like in in the in the world of first responders? Well, in so in the world of first responders, you have a lot of men and women protecting us every day who don't get connected to how they're feeling and they suppress some trauma or things that they have to see day to day and they don't work through it. So it causes them a lot of angst and they don't even know it. This is very interesting. So first responders are saving lives, they are helping others but they are not helping themselves. Exactly. Exactly. And I think I think the newer the newer generations coming through, for example, law enforcement training are being equipped with a little bit more mental health resilience, but you have a stigma in in law enforcement that you don't speak up because if you speak up, you're going to lose you're going to lose, you know, your potentially lose your role, lose your authority, maybe even, you know, lose your job because if you suggest that you're not mentally sound, they might remove your 
you know, your gun or whatever, whatever you have that they think could be a concern instead of like really addressing the concern and getting them the help that they need. Why did you decide to go in this territory? So it didn't, it, so it's so funny how this whole thing unfolded, right? So, so I grew up with a mom who had bipolar disorder and I knew what it looked like from the lens of a caregiver, a child caregiver, how hard it was to love someone with a mental illness. And then a couple of years ago, because of a life event, I dealt with depression. So I had like this, this twofold perspective. And then I was working at my Fortune 50 company to shift the culture in the workplace to create more compassion. So we had an employee resource group for mental health where we were just creating a dialogue. It, employees could talk to one another, connect with one another, not be isolated. So we were out to remove the stigma in the workplace, right? And that's great. And, and that was a great experience. And I witnessed what worked and what didn't work. I think the tipping point for me was when I was not met with compassion, having a mental illness and having the courage to speak up and say, I'm sorry, boss, lady, I actually deal with depression and I'm struggling and I am in therapy. And I'm telling you that so that you understand that it's not my performance. It's just literally, I'm just trying to hold myself together as I get through a really hard time in my life. And it wasn't met with compassion. And when it wasn't met with compassion, I, and I was judged, you know, for not being happy and bubbly every day. It really took me back and made me realize we have a lot of work to do for other people. You know, that was my experience. But how many other employees are struggling to put their game face on, go into work and pretend everything is okay, but they're really struggling, you know? So, so many people in the world. So many, right? Because they're, they're ashamed. They don't want to be perceived as less or weak or um, not capable. And that added layer of stress to keep it a secret is even harder. So, so anyway, so that ignited this passion in me to like go out and, and use my voice and my experience to really get into companies, sit down with them, talk about what they're currently doing, build a mental health strategy, an inclusion strategy for people with invisible disabilities and how they can support them and what they can do to create a stigma-free environment. How do you define mental health illness? How did I find, how did I How do you define it? Oh, define it? I think it, you know, I think we all have periods of wellness and, you know, like I compare it to physical, physical health, right? You know, you have moments in your life when you're in top shape, you're working out, you're taking care of yourself, you feel good and you physically are in the best, best shape of your life, right? The same thing can happen with mental health. If we don't, if we suddenly are in a low period, we're dealing with something, we're not going to be as mentally strong. So if you, don't inter if you don't have an intervention at that point and try different things, maybe get yourself into a therapist or start, start you know, trying different strategies to help yourself, you then can land you know, in dealing with a mental illness. So, but we all have the power to try to intervene before it gets from you know, mental wellness to mental illness. And I also think we float along that line between wellness and illness, depending on our life situations and circumstances that we're confronted with. I would like to come back to this mental health issue in a while. And uh, before that, I would like to ask you about your childhood. What was it? What was your childhood look like when you were giving care to your bipolar mom? You know, I didn't know any different, Nishan. I knew that my mother was, was, she was sick. Like I, 
I knew that she had a mental illness. I was familiar with the term manic depressant. And I also took on the responsibility of trying to do everything in my, in my possible power to help her have peace in her life. So anything I could do to keep her sort of settled is what I did. And I didn't know any different. She would have periods of mania where we would go shopping. We'd go on shopping sprees together. And then she'd have deep depressions where she would just sit in her chair and cry uncontrollably. And there was nothing I could do to console her. So I observed this roller coaster of emotions with her. And I didn't, I didn't know that that wasn't what my girlfriends were dealing with in their home until I went to their house and I experienced life you know, with them and with their mother and what that was like. And it was like, oh, well, this is very different than what I have at home. How old were you at the time? My mom started having symptoms, I think, when I was started when I was maybe four or five years old up until the point where she passed away and I was in my 20s. And this is sad. And a lot of people go through the same problem when they're, when they're in their childhood days, but they are not sure what to do. Where can they go? Right. So how did you develop that courage, even at a very small age? You mean just to deal with it? I, I, yes. I don't, you know, like I didn't have a choice. It was like, it was a, co- I mean, I had coping mechanisms like <laughs> through years of therapy. I'm really clear on the coping me- mechanisms that I, <laughs> that I adopted <laughs> to deal with it, right? Like ignore, pretend it didn't happen, you know, get out of the house as much as possible, go spend time with other people, <laughs> stay away from the certain situation. I don't know, ultimately find a safe place to tell people what was going on. Like I couldn't tell people about this in school. I felt like that would just have been a nightmare. People judge and they're mean. I ultimately found a safe haven in my youth group and was able to share that with a very compassionate group of kids. You know, I I found ways, you know, there's a chapter in my book, in my memoir, Breaking Into My Life, where I talk about how I gravitated to the to the attention of boys because they accepted me and I wasn't getting any attention at home and they were giving me attention. So I did what I had to, to get what I needed. And what, what makes a successful child? What makes a successful child? Well, that's a very interesting question. (laughs) I mean, I would say that even my childhood as dysfunctional as it was made me into the perfect human being that I am now because I'm an advocate because of my experience. I don't know that there's any perfect child. I think all of our experiences shape us and ignite something bigger inside of us. And it's just whether or not we listen to it. And in those days, did you create any view of the world that this world is like this or like that? You know, it's interesting. I have memories, vivid memories, and I actually talk about this in the book. You know, there was a time when my mom would be too fragile to be left alone, but not sick enough to be hospitalized in a mental hospital. So there were times when my father would ask me to stay home from school and just be with her because she couldn't be alone and he was worried about her, but he had to go to work. And I remember sitting in our TV room in our house on Pearson Street with my mother as she was watching soap operas. And I just remember looking outside the window up into the oak tree that was in the backyard when the sun was shining and the birds were chirping and just being really present to how beautiful it was outside. And my mom is sitting in her chair in the TV room crying and she can't appreciate the beauty out that window that I can. So I think that my experience with my mom and seeing how, how, how dark life was through her lens actually amplified how beautiful life was for me. 
you know, I, how I could find the beauty in the day and know, you know, the contrast that she couldn't. Do you think you had this God gift or universe gift that you were giving positive meaning to those circumstances? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it helped me. It helped me find the silver lining. I, I always try to find the silver lining in things. I think it's my nature. And people say, oh, you're so positive. Why are you always so positive? <laughs> Let me tell you, it's it's almost like a mind game for me. Like if something is really crappy and I, and I can find something good in it, I'm going to because it's going to help me. And I had to do that. When my mom is crying hysterically on the couch and I can't do anything, I, I had to look for something to grab onto that was positive. Did you crave so, for her love? Of course. Oh my goodness. Yeah, she was she was very emotionally unavailable. So of course it made me crave that. Mm-hmm. This is a very interesting topic and I hope you are enjoying all this conversation. So I want to ask you that mm-hmm. did that craveness come up for you in your adulthood life with your kids or with your spouse? Oh, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. So I don't have any children. <laughs> People say, why don't you have children? Well, you know, when you're a child and you're given this responsibility of caring for your mother... <laughs> Maybe that's why I don't have any children. I just never, I never made the choice to have children. So, but I've been married twice and I've had two relationships in my life that I've learned a lot from. And I've also learned why I gravitated to those relationships. And unfortunately, through a lot of therapy and self-discovery, I've come to realize that you gravitate towards what's comfortable for you. You don't gravitate toward what's good for you. and you have to be really self-aware to recognize if you're if you're going down that road again because it's what you were taught so so young to be comfortable self-awareness so, is yeah. very strong powerful and it is never ending process so could you recommend some books or some practices to cultivate more of our self inner awareness honestly self-awareness is the greatest gift you can give to yourself because even if i mean If I didn't do the self-discovery work, I would never be able to have healed to be able to have written my story from a place of love and compassion. I would have been still very angry at my mother and very resentful, and that we all know does no good for someone to carry around with them. So I did a lot of therapy, but then I also did immersion programs, like self-discovery immersion programs where I could really examine myself, and I did the first program I did was the Landmark Forum. and then i did the entire curriculum for living with landmark worldwide and that opened my eyes to how i thought and why i thought and the stories that i made up about my childhood because that's what happens we have things that happen to us and then we create a beautiful story around them and then that's what we we hang our hat on and half and 95% of the time they're not even true so that self awareness program was amazing and the work was amazing and then from there I wound up getting it into uh Tony Robbins work and I did a lot of his programs. I did Unleash the Power Within, I did Date with Destiny, and these programs took it to another level for me and helped me really peel back and understand why I was the way I was in terms of like human needs and what what I was avoiding and, you know, patterns that I had. So, I would say those immersion programs were really what gave me the most insight and the most growth i'm familiar with landmark and i'm fan of tony robbins for sure yeah. and uh, do you think we can 
heal mental health problem with landmark or some other coach or do we need mental health professional or some sort of therapy yeah i would be i i, I would be foolish to try to answer that question and say we we don't need clinicians we absolutely need clinicians we need people to be exploring what's best for them and we need cl- clinicians to help diagnose you know people with with chronic mental illness who can't do it alone they they need that support of some sort whether it's you know talk therapy or some type of some type of a prescription or some type of holistic approach whatever that is i think i think we need we need the whole suite because not one person is the same exactly and what's happening these days is this this whole discussion regarding coaching versus therapy there is no right or wrong you know right. we all need the whole suite <laughs> coaching is totally different and when we are going through some inner deep trauma then we need mental health professionals who have gone to mental health schools they have education they know how to deal with that yeah absolutely you're so right about that yep and and what causes mental health problems can children have mental health issues absolutely i think it's it's rooted in your environment it's rooted in your genetics and everybody's different so it depends and and absolutely children children can can have some type of mental illness you know i mean there could be some trauma in their in their childhood there could be you know a whole host of things we're we're very complex human beings you know we're all very different <laughs> so it's hard to you know to say that this is the single cause because then we would be ignorant to believe that but i think in western countries for instance usa people talk openly about mental health problems but in countries such as india or asian yes. countries i don't think right. people talk about it when i was growing up in india nobody talked about it i didn't know <laughs> all this exactly. all ha- exists so yeah the awareness is a bigger problem in 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 this world awareness of mental health problems what yep. can we do about it in your opinion yeah that all comes back to stigma so i would say two parts we need to raise a generation of children that are comfortable getting connected to their brain as just another organ and having the courage to raise their hand and 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 speak up if they don't feel good in their brain so we need to create a generation where there is no stigma because we've we've taught them that it's okay to not be okay and to raise your hand and ask for help that's the first thing but then we have a generation like you and I or older even where you don't dare talk about something like this and the stigma just lives i think we have an opportunity to start talking more openly about it we have great examples celebrities in the in the news we have people coming out and openly sharing that they have had experiences and that helps normalize it but we can do a better job by you know checking in on one another using using language like are you okay it's okay not to be okay you know how are you feeling having you know inviting people to to self assess themselves how how are you feeling i don't know how am i feeling you know because oftentimes we go through life in a blur but if we can start to just check in on one another and normalize a conversation around brain health just like we would around heart disease we have the opportunity to remove stigma and when we remove stigma more people have the courage to raise their hand and get care and then there's no you know fear or embarrassment around just taking care of yourself and if you are given the command to lead a country in in the realm of mental health 
And where would you start from? Wow. So I would, <laughs> I would take it back to the work I'm doing in the company because the country is a little overwhelming. I got to tell you, let's start with a, let's start with an organization okay. that is eager, that is innovative and eager to create a compassionate culture for their people. You know, the first thing you have to do is you have to assess the environment that there, that there currently is. Like, what are the, what are the unspoken norms and the, and the norms of the, of the organization? What are the policies? What are, what's the remit from the highest level of the organization? Can we, can we get them to address this as, as you, as an inclusion issue, right? If we include people of all all abilities, that includes people with invisible disabilities. If we make accommodations for people with physical disabilities, why are we not making accommodations for people with, with mental, you know, issues. that need, yeah, exactly. So it's that, it's, it's what, what actions can we take to initiate a safe conversation about mental health in the workplace? What resources are available? How easy is it to get care? When I'm finally willing to raise my hand and say, I think I need a therapist. How hard is it for that employee to get on the phone and get a therapist? Is it immediate or are we talking two, three weeks till they can actually get on a calendar of, of a physician? So there's a lot of things, removing barriers and cultivating conversation that can really help create that compassion in the workplace. Is it common in corporate? What do you mean? Is it common? It's not common. Not enough companies are doing this. Because mindfulness... Yet. People are talking about mindfulness in corporate jobs. Mindfulness right. is becoming a big word these days, but I've personally never heard of dealing with mental health problems well, it, in the corporate yeah. sector. I mean, well, we, let's, let's face it. We don't want it to come to mental health. If, if you don't want it to come to a point where you have an employee in crisis, what do you do? You address the stress. You talk about the stress. You talk about what what are you doing to empower your employees to mitigate stress better in their lives? How are you equipping them in terms of knowledge or tools or technology so that they can manage their own stress levels and prevent them from getting to the point where they have a mental, a mental health crisis? So there's so many cool things that are out there now to help people just manage their own well-being and take control of that. And, and, and that's, you know, and it's, it's exciting. Like the clients that I have that are actually like, let's do this. Let's, let's get our people healthy mentally and supported so that we don't have to deal with them going out on disability or, or hitting, or hitting, you know, a wall because, because they're, they're just fried, you know? Can we, can mindfulness help in mental health problems? Absolutely. And I think, you know, I think mindfulness totally has a place in this, but I think that that's been the first step that has, that has happened. And I think it has to be a shared responsibility. So I think there's ownership on the company to offer something, but then there's also has to be a level of accountability on the employee side that they're going to manage stress. And then the company is going to provide tools and resources to support that. And it has to be a combination of the two. Ownership has to be shared. So mindfulness absolutely has a place as one of the tools that they can use. I agree with that. Is there any other tool? Yeah, there, there are, you know, conversations that could be had about what people, what people do to manage stress. Like, what are they doing when they hit their tipping point? And maybe give them some healthy coping me mechanisms to be able to mitigate it before it gets to the point where 
it's too much for them. And you know? I, I, I love what you just mentioned that it's the it's equal responsibility of employer and employee. And yeah. sometimes employer can't afford it. They can't provide therapy or some sort of help. So in that case, the person has to seek help outside the organization. You have you don't have to stuck in the organization to get the help. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And where where can people find real good therapy? And how to identify, there are so many therapists in the world, where to go, which is the right fit for them? How to identify that? Yeah, you know, I think you you have to, you know, I want to say start with your insurance carrier. And, and I know people probably roll their eyes right now. But unfortunately, like if you want to t- have, t- if you want to have your care covered, you have to start there. But there are great, you know, tele, tele, telemedicine is great. You can get on the phone. You could, you know, you can, you can get a therapist over the phone. That's pretty immediate. And it's, it's a flat fee. I don't know what individual companies are offering individual employees, but there's there's great care out there. I mean, my well-being is a great is a great resource. It pairs. It's sort of like a matchmaking. It, it is. It matches you with the right therapist, which I think is just brilliant. You know, based on what you're looking for and what and what skills they have, it, it's like a matching system. And that is one aspect. So as an, yeah. so let's say as a participant, I want to get a therapist. So sh- what should I look for in that therapist? Uh, maybe some qualification or what should I look for? I mean, like any other thing, if you go shopping, you want to look at the reviews, you want to look at the fact that they're, that they're, you know, they have their credentials in, <laughs> in order. I mean, there's so many great resources to really snoop around and understand if a doctor is, is got a good reputation. I mean, do your homework like you would if you're buying a vacuum cleaner. I mean, invest the same kind of energy, you know? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I, I know I wouldn't go to some random doctor unless I really vetted them. I mean, I'd want to make sure, you know? Yeah. And, and in dealing with mental health issues, uh, what mindfulness practices could you recommend? Oh my goodness. There's so many, right? So well, obviously, there's mindful meditation. Meditation is such a beautiful way to wring out all of the unnecessary noise in your head and give you acute focus and uh, clarity and just really remove the stress from your, from your brain because let's face it, how many thoughts are we having a day? So I highly recommend meditation. I personally do the five-minute journal on my phone to get myself present to the gratitude that I have in my life. Because on your phone? What on my phone. Mean? Yeah, Can it's an app. On that? It's an app. It's called the five minute journal. You download it. It's on your phone. Literally takes five minutes and I journal every morning and it literally asks you what are three things that you're grateful for. So, so you don't, it, you don't write on a notepad. No, no okay. it's on my phone. It's really, it's really, it literally takes like five minutes. But what it does is if, if you're, if you're busy focused on gratitude, you, you can't be focused on anything negative because you're focused on something, you know, that's good in your life. So the more you can train your brain to, to be thinking about what is good and what you're grateful for, that's the best thing you can do to get yourself into that mindset. So what did yeah. you write today? Oh, what did I write today? I think I wrote, <laughs> I think I wrote my dog cause she's my sidekick. She's with me always. So I think I wrote my dog, my determination because I'm just like, I'm, I, just get up and just go. And um, my health, my health, 
absolutely. I couldn't do any of this without my health. Meditation is one of the practices. Second is gratitude. And yeah. any other thing like yoga or something like that? Oh, well, exercise. Yeah, all kinds of exercise. I think it's really important to move your, to move your body and to elevate your heart rate. So, I, you know, gosh, that's so important. I'm, I know for me, when I was dealing with depression, I will tell you, I asked my doctor for medication. I said, just give me medicine to get through this because I'm really depressed. And he said, no, you have to navigate this. I want you to feel what you're feeling and navigate this and find some healthy coping mechanisms. And I was, I was kind of irritated at him. But then I went and I signed up for a triathlon. And what that did was it had me focused on exercise because I had to get better. And so the endorphin high. So that's so important if you're trying to keep your, your, your mental state healthy and you want to stay balanced and empowered, move your body. The endorphins are definitely a help. It helped me immensely. And going back to the depression, how did you know that you were going through depression? Oh my goodness. I was so, I was so, I knew it because the things that I love to do, I no longer had interest in. So I'm a potter. I, I'm a teacher of pottery and I'm a student of pottery on the wheel. I throw clay. And when I suddenly lost interest in pottery, I was like, we have a problem. I just had no energy and no interest in the things that I loved. Does it happen all the time in our lives when we stop loving the things we used to love? It Does it mean that we are going through depression? I don't think so. I think it's a moment to reflect and say, why don't I have the level of joy in my life that I once had or that I know I deserve? I think it's a joy evaluation more than anything. And I just didn't have the joy. So I knew I should probably, I should probably get back into therapy and talk to someone about it. And what's, what's your definition, your personal definition of depression? My personal definition of depression, my, based on my own experience, yes. is, oh, I don't know. I mean, I was sad. I, was, I had no energy. I was unmotivated. The glass was half empty. It was hard to find, you know, if someone told me to be positive, I would have, I would have punched them in the face because <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't just be positive. You know, the girl who's always positive, I couldn't be positive. I just couldn't. I couldn't find that silver lining when I was depressed. Like I mentioned earlier with my mom, like I could always find a silver lining. I couldn't find it when I was depressed. I think every, everybody goes through some episodes of depression at some point in their lives. It just comes and goes. Yeah. And if it is staying there for a long period of time, then we get to seek real help. Yeah. And awareness of depression if we are not aware if we are just going through the motions then we are digging our own grave yeah yeah prolonged sadness prolonged lack of joy or lack of enthusiasm for life i would say those are things that extreme you shouldn't yeah you shouldn't tolerate that you should say no man i deserve more i'm going to i'm going to figure this out i'm going to go get help i'm going to do something it it is like equilibrium you cannot be staying on one end for a long period of time. You cannot be happy or excited for a long time and you can be sad for a long time. It's kind of two sides of a pendulum. You know, if you want to go to the, if you go to one extreme, then you will automatically will go to another extreme. You can't stay on one side for a long period of time. If you are yeah. staying there, if you're trying to stay there for a long time, then something could be troubling. I get mm -hmm. my, I have my own issues. I get sad. I get so happy. I get excited. But 
these are moments embracing right. those moments not staying in those right and we talk about channelizing negative energy into positive energy or channelizing anger into positive emotion can de- depression be utilized in a positive way what do you think about that yeah i mean i think it's i think it's a beautiful thing because it gives you contrast right like contrast is the gift when you're depressed and you don't have a zest for life and then you find your way out of that and you you just have a deeper appreciation for having the energy and the ambition and the and the and the outlook you know i think that contrast reminds us you know we're human and to appreciate when you know you're you are mentally feeling strong you know yes and after you have worked so much on all these issues do you get depressive episodes temporarily yeah you know now i mean obviously we're dealing with covid still i live alone it's just me and my dog and we're quarantined so i've had moments during this whole period where i where i'm like oh my goodness i just want to go meet some human beings and look at some faces if i look at a zoom screen again ugh, i can't you know oh. um yeah but then like i that's when i'm having those dark more moments and i'm like oh i'm starting to feel depressed i reflect i have to stop and reflect and ask myself what am i doing to keep myself strong am i am i eating well am i getting enough rest am i working too much like i have to take inventory because it's not normal for me to feel that way and 9 times out of 10 it's because i'm not eating well i'm not disconnecting from work i'm not exercising so with a few adjustments i can pretty much pull myself back to you know back to my normal set set emotion and this is again mindfulness that we have to take some some periods of rest in our day to day life if we are not disconnecting from our work or from our usual life we are just going through yes. the motions and we need some pause time thinking time or sacred time to to think about creativity because creativity It, lies in silence totally and i agree with that and i think the tendency with working from home is that you just keep working cuz you can and oh it's a distraction from all this craziness going on i'm just going to keep working but then you don't thoroughly dis- disengage and recharge your battery and and clear your head and i mean you think about an athlete in general athletes don't do a race and then tomorrow do another race they they take time to to relax to recharge to heal and then they get back in the game and there is a great resource book on this topic the book name is the power of full engagement it talks about stress and recover for instance when you go to gym you you know you you lift some dumbbells or something like that you are breaking your muscles and then you rest you know you stress your muscles then you rest if you don't mm-hmm. rest then you don't recover and another instance is in a tennis game in a long tennis game you know players after they play each stroke they take few seconds of rest you know they keep playing with the ball and they do something to recover to regain their energy and mm-hmm. we we all have physical emotional mental energy personally if i don't take rest i feel burned out i literally feel in my head that yeah. i'm feeling burned out my mental energy is gone yeah yeah and and on the on the flip side when you meditate and you clear your head after you've been well rested 
The laser focus you can have is incredible. Like, I realize that. After I meditate, after a good night's sleep, I sit down and I am so focused and incredibly productive. It's like you're doing yourself a disservice by thinking that you don't need rest, recovery, sleep, and to meditate. Because until you, you do all three of those and you feel what it feels like to, to, to be productive, you won't get it. <laughs> and sometimes, you know, it's okay to not being able to do everything in one day. It's okay to allow yourself to not be productive. It's okay that it is yeah. what it is. It yeah. is what it is. The world is, is still going to run. Nothing is going <laughs> to stop. Why did you write your memoir, Breaking Into My Life? What is it about? Yeah, so I wrote my memoir after I gave my TED Talk. I was nominated by a colleague to give my TED Talk about my mom. And the response was so amazing. And it opened up a conversation about mental health in the workplace. And I thought, wow, if this is the reaction that I could get from a 13-minute TED Talk, what could I do with a book? So that's when I said, I'm going to put pen to paper and write my memoir. So yeah, because I thought if I could tell my story and really humanize mental health further, I could be a force for change and and really help people talk about something that they didn't want to talk about. So if this girl shows up with a book in her hand and she says, here's my book, and they say, what is it about? You've just opened the conversation that wasn't going to happen about mental health. So that's where I thought I could do something with my story and I could really make a difference. So and then it turned out to be incredibly cathartic because it was a four-year writing process and unearthing of a lot of experiences, painful experiences from my childhood. Do you ever go back and read your memoir on your own? No. <laughs> because I, You know why? Because in the writing process and the editing process, you, you sort of get sick of it. <laughs> you sort of do. Like People are like, Michelle, you're going to do an audio book of your audio version of your book? I'm like, I don't think I can. <laughs> like, I just don't think I can sit there and read those words yet again. <laughs> so, And I, I was thinking about it, actually, that we all have stories, but sometimes when we, it, we, it's okay not to bring our past into the present. It's okay to motivate and inspire people through our present situation, not, you know, not motivating, not motivating somebody from a lack of deficiency in the past. Because mm -hmm. we, we say that it happened to me, that happened to me in the past. I, I used to be like this, I used to be like that. Mm -hmm. If we can shift from past to present and say, this is what I'm doing, yeah. you know, then this is where I'm going. We can motivate right. from that angle as well, not just bringing struggle, challenges, negativity from the past. Right. Different ways exactly. to inspire people, actually. Yeah, and and honestly, it's so good that you bring that up because... You know, if I would have written my memoir a few years earlier, I would have been in a very different place because I was not resolved with my mother and how she treated me. It wasn't until I got to the point of like, I can have compassion and forgiveness for her because she was doing the best she could. But, you know, even, even like I wanted people to get that my story is heavy, but it is ultimately a story of perseverance and triumph in how I came out the other side. And so if that gives someone hope, then that's my goal. Because even in the back of the book, when I write about, in the epilogue, I write how my mother's 
illness actually positively shaped me and has given me some of the, the most awesome qualities that I have. And, you know, because of her, I've become a mental health change agent. So there's a lot of good that came out of it, but I wouldn't, I would not have been able to see that a few years before um, giving my TED talk because I was still very angry and, and incomplete with her. I love it. And I wanted to ask you about the bipolar disorder. I mm -hmm. hear this term more and more these days. Mm -hmm. And uh, I wanted to ask you in the in our first conversation, and uh, could you elaborate more on what is this bipolar disorder? And I know people can Google it, but in your own, from your own experience. Yeah, from my experience, my mother had had bipolar, and I think it presents itself in different ways in different people. I think back when my mom when my mother had it, there wasn't bipolar one or bipolar two. There's different diagnoses now. They've gotten they've really elevated the their knowledge around mental illness and their care and the treatment that they have. My mom just had bipolar. She was just diagnosed with bipolar. And she just had periods of severe depression and extreme mania. So, and, and in between, she was controlling, abusive, loving. She was everything uh, across the entire spectrum. I just, I, I write in the book how when I came home from school, I never knew the mother that I was coming home to because you just never knew her mood could just change on a dime from happy to mean to loving to sad. You know, it was just a very, a very hard experience. So very volatile. And in her case, she had to be hospitalized several times. She had to undergo shock therapy to pull her out of her her nervousness and being her nervous and upset state had to be broken through shock therapy. And yeah, and then the medication she would be on would alter her mood and alter her how she felt. So, you know, there's a whole host of things that went along with her bipolar disorder. Do you feel that mental health, talking about mental health is, is still a taboo these days? I think we're getting we're getting there and I honestly believe that COVID is helping us start to talk about how we're feeling and that's the first step in removing stigma. So, I think it's becoming less taboo, but I think we have some work we still have more work to do to really help everyone start to relate to the brain as just another organ. And uh, I strongly believe that we can do a lot in this world and in US people are opening up about mental health issues but in different countries it is still a taboo if somebody talks about depression it means you are having a mental problem you should go to a mental hospital you know yeah. you should you are not allowed to live in a house you should go to a mental hospital your life is ruined it sucks you know yeah. and i think the world needs more of mental health professionals yeah yeah, and I think, you know, we need to see those examples of people thriving with mental health concerns, managing their mental health, and thriving, and, and being amazing contributors in the world. My mother was brilliant, and she had mental illness. She, she was incredibly talented, and I think we need to see what that, those examples look like. Oh, look at this person. They're a successful, you know, attorney, or they're a successful whatever, and they're doing life and they have a mental illness. We need to see more of those examples because that'll give people hope that their life is not over. It is possible to manage their mental illness and 
and thrive and do all the things that they dream that, that they want to do. Do you miss your mom? Of course. As much as, as much as she was a pain in my butt, of course I miss her. Absolutely. Every day. Oh, what is that you miss the most? You know, toward the end of her life, we started to evolve our relationship and she became like a, like a friend, an adult, you know, woman to woman kind of friendship, which was like the best part because she wasn't treating me like a, a, a child. I don't know. Like I know she adored me and I will never forget how much I was her world. She would talk, to, she would talk about me to her friends and to our family and then like to my face, she would never say half the things she would say to everyone about me. <laughs> but I think I miss her belief in me sometimes when I feel like I can't do what I'm out to do. She always believed in me. Yeah, thanks for being vulnerable in this conversation. And before I ask you my last question, I want to ask you that. What do you plan on doing in, in the world of first respondent, maybe in 2020 or in next few years? Yes. Oh, thanks for asking about that. I have um, a business partner, Sergeant Lynette, and she is my new business partner. And she is a mental health first aid trainer. And she's also struggled with her own mental health challenges. And she and I are looking to bring uh, resilience training to first responders, de-escalation training. So officers can identify a mental illness in, in someone versus a criminal and be able to manage those situations in the community more effectively. And then a mental health first aid. So they know and they're familiar with and they shift their relationship to mental health for themselves and for their communities. So we have these three programs that we're really looking to bring and it's, and it's interactive. It's not, it's not a, a 150 slides on, on, a, on a wall for two days. She is a very interactive instructor and she wants officers to, to really live and, and do some role playing and get really familiar with mental health. So we, we are excited to bring this to, to first responders and really help them. Uh, where can people find you online? Sure. Uh, my website, Michelle with two L's, E. Dickinson, D-I-C-K-I-N-S-O-N.com. I thought I would ask you, this would be the last question, but I have one more last question then. Okay. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm like dying to ask you this thing. Okay. According to you and from your experience, from your past experience and from your present experience, what makes a successful parent? What makes a successful parent? Wow. Being self-aware themselves and guiding their little one to become aware of how they're feeling. You, you, you can only model for your child what you do yourself. So I think what makes a successful parent is one who is self-aware and connected to their well-being so they can model what that looks like for their little ones. Well, thank you so much, Michelle. It was amazing conversation with you. Thank you for having me. Thank You're you. welcome. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode today. I hope you learned from this episode that you can apply in your life. If you did enjoy this, please subscribe to the podcast, The Nishan Garg Show on Apple Podcast. You can also subscribe to the show through my website, https colon slash slash nishangarg.me n-i-s-h-a-n-t-g-a-r-g dot me. 
you can also share this podcast with your family and friends or whoever want to feel fulfilled and thank you so much again